2000 Northwest Christian Education Conference, Defending the Faith, Paul Pardee. Ben, have you guys been enjoying the, uh, the conference so far? Oh, yeah. Great. Um, has has any, everyone been here for both days, one day? One day. Both days? Good. Yeah, there's lots of good, uh, lots of good seminars this year. I helped, uh, I was on the board for the, the conference and helped put some of this together and really had a good time with it. So I'm glad you're enjoying yourself. Uh, I have a handout here I'd like you to take, so please uh, pass these around. Make sure that everyone gets one. And if we need more, let me know because we can get some copies made. My name is uh, Paul Party, and uh, before we begin, I want to uh, tell you a little bit about myself, where I'm coming from, and that will help you help orient you to my position and, and uh, what I'm all about and, and my goals for, for this, uh, this seminar. Uh, I came to salvation in Christ uh, as a young child when I was uh, seven years old. And uh, my, actually, my entire family came to know the Lord at the same time, which I guess is unique these days. We came out of a Catholic tradition, and, uh, and we, all, uh, we all got saved together. At the, at the, uh, yeah, through, through, actually, it was through a, a variety of circumstances, some of, in, some of these circumstances involving uh, the Catholic Church was just kind of odd. But um, we grew in salvation. I personally grew uh, in Christ and in, in learning about Christ. And then when I hit high school... Um, I started doing some thinking about my salvation and about Christ, and I realized that if Christ existed, like I believed he did, and if Christianity were true, which I believed it was true, then there was only one sensible thing to do, and that was to commit my entire self to him and to his cause. And so that's what I did early in high school. And I purposed in my heart to learn all I could learn about, uh, about Christianity, about my faith, about my beliefs, and I had actually made a decision um, my sophomore year of high school to pursue the pastorate, to get involved in studies that would help me to become a, a pastor one day. And I did that. I studied hard. I learned all I could learn. I got involved in church as much as I possibly could as a youngster. And then I uh, went to, to college, and I went full bore, went crazy for, for the Christian cause, and did everything I could to get myself involved and immersed in doing the work for Christ. Part of that... Um, was getting involved in an organization in, uh, in, in college where we would go into the inner cities, the large inner cities of the East Coast, Boston, Philadelphia, New York, and we'd stand on the street corner and we'd set up a board with a, with a piece of paper on it and we'd have some paints and we'd give a gospel presentation using this, this, uh, these illustrations on this paint board. And uh, we would talk to the indigent, the homeless. We'd go to the business dis- district and talk to business people. We'd hand out tracts get heckled. It was a, an amazing experience. I remember one time we went to um, New York City and we were in downtown Manhattan uh, on Halloween evening. <laughs> Talk about being scared for your life. It was a terrifying experience, but it was, it was wonderful at the same time and we saw all sorts of things. Then my senior year of college uh, did things like going into uh, secular universities. We were invited to a religion class one time where we were able to present the gospel to this, this class that was talking about religion. And the professor didn't even believe in God, but he was teaching a religion class at this university. Uh, we were later invited to uh, this professor's home that evening, and three of us went, and we were able to talk to his students, his religion students, about our beliefs. And um, I remember uh, vividly, we were sitting there talking, we were kind of in a circle. There were probably ten students and the professor, and the professor's wife was there, and she was a Buddhist. And she was sitting off in the corner in the lotus position, meditating on whatever Buddhists tend to meditate on. 
And I kind of thought she was going to levitate there for a while. I didn't know what to expect because it was brand new to me. But we were talking, and I remember halfway through our conversation, um, one of the young ladies uh, uh, started crying. And we asked her what was going on, and she said, you know, I wish I, wish I could have the beliefs that you have. Uh, she was talking to the three of us. She said, you guys seem really confident in what you believe, and I wish I had that. And so she wanted, she wanted to believe in Christ, but she just couldn't do it. And at the time, I couldn't understand why. I think I have a little bit better insight into it now, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But that impacted me. Then um, something happened my senior year of college. Something uh, critical happened in my faith. I attended an introductory, uh, introductory uh, philosophy course, Philosophy 101. It was required for the course of study that I was in. And this is at a very fundamental regular Baptist school. Those of you who know about the regular Baptists know that they take a strong stand on on the Bible and on the fundamentals of the faith. So it was kind of surprising that this class was actually being taught. But the professor, when he got to the religion section for this introduction to the philosophy uh, course, uh, what he did was dismantle all the classical arguments for the existence of God. And he tried to show how they don't work. Now, I had never really thought about these arguments. I had, I had read them. I read Josh McDowell and a little bit of Norman Geisler, you know, that uh, typical reading for, for a, a Christian at that time. And I never really meditated on them. I never thought about them. But I stuck them in my back pocket as being valid proofs for God's existence. And if I ever needed them, I'd pull them out and, and show them. Well, this professor dismantled those arguments. And it left me with nothing to stand on. And my faith went into a tailspin. And I was... I was ready to hit rock bottom. And I experienced two, two and a half to three years of severe doubt, and I read everything I could get my hands on to try to figure out what the truth was, because I, I didn't know where, I was, where to stand anymore. And uh, I read a lot of atheistic literature, read a lot of Christian literature, read both sides to try to figure out what the truth was. Now, as I did my study, as I did my research, I kept coming back to a discipline that, I, that actually ended up helping me uh, to come back to faith and secure my faith in God, and that was uh, philosophy. And I pursued philosophy for, for two and a half to three years and then entered into graduate studies. I did some graduate studies in philosophy, and I've been pursuing the discipline ever since. And I found that actually philosophy has helped strengthen my faith rather than destroy it. I found that a little bit of philosophy makes you an atheist. A lot of philosophy makes you a theist. That's been my experience. But I went into the, uh, the study of philosophy and... Uh, what I want to do this morning or this afternoon is to share with you some of what I've been thinking about and percolating, as what has been percolating in my mind for the past uh, seven years as I've been thinking about this material, and I hope it will be of some help to you. Now, I want to say right up front that I, I really cherish the opportunity to speak with you folks because I believe that you represent the doers in your church. I think that you represent the people that are proactive, that, that maybe see some issues that need to be resolved, that want to see your churches grow and do better than they're doing. And so I really find it uh, a privilege to talk to you folks because I think that you're going to be able to use this material better than anyone else. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that you are interested in seeing change and in seeing something happen. So we, uh, we uh, hopefully will have a lot of fun today and, and get some things done for the cause of Christ. Now let me tell you what I, I want to try to accomplish. Uh, first of all, I want to try to challenge your thinking a little bit. Now, I'm going to present some ideas, and in a group like this, I'm sure we represent uh, all ends of the spectrum. Um, uh, the, we're probably all over the map, theologically maybe, and uh, philosophically. So I'm going to present some things probably that you won't agree with. There are probably some things I'm going to say that you're just going to flat say that's wrong. And uh, that's okay. Um, if you disagree with some of the things I have to say, 
I would hope that you would at least uh, listen to the ideas and, and meditate on them and then come up with good reasons for why I'm wrong and that you won't just dismiss them out of hand. But I, I do want to try to challenge your thinking a little bit and to cause you to think about some things that maybe are, 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 not, uh, are not normal for you to think about. So that's the second thing is that I want to, um, my purpose is to introduce you to some unfamiliar ideas. If you come to a conference like this and you just hear the stuff that you always hear, then you're not going to, be, you're not going to leave challenged. So my goal is to give you some things to think about that maybe you haven't thought about before. But I also want to encourage you. That's another one of my purposes. I want, to, I want you to leave here encouraged. I want you to leave here excited about the church, excited about where the church is going, and I want you to feel like you're uh, better equipped to do the work of ministry for the cause of Christ. And then finally, I hope to present you with some resources and information that may help you in doing just that. Okay, so those are my goals for this, this afternoon's talk. Now, the title of this, uh, this seminar is called Defending the Faith, and I want to begin by talking about what, what does that term mean? Now, this term is also, the other, another term for uh, defending the faith is apologetics. We've heard that, most of us have heard apologetics, especially in the literature. You see a lot of uh, uh, that term used. So I want to talk about different models, different approaches to how we might go about defending the faith. What does that mean? What does it mean to defend the faith? Let me grab a study guide so I don't get too far off here. I've listed um, on, your, on your study sheet there, your handout, I've listed, listed four approaches, and I want to talk about each approach and then recommend one approach to you. And I'll explain why I believe this is the best approach for doing apologetics or doing a, a defense of the faith. All right? Did you need a handout? I, are there any left? Okay, there's, there's some there. And there's some in the back. Thank you. I think that gentleman may need one. Okay, so let's look at the four approaches. The first approach is uh, I've called the just dare ask me approach. The just dare ask me approach. And some of us uh, maybe have used this. I've used this in the past. Okay? This is the approach where you um, read your Josh McDowell and you read your Norman Geisler and you come up with these uh, terse one-paragraph arguments for why God exists. And you, you build a list of them. You fill your quiver with these arguments. And then you're just waiting for some atheist to pounce on you and ask you a question. And as soon as they ask you the question, you say, well, have you heard about the ontological argument? What about that? You can't spell ontological, but you, you use this as an argument against the atheist, right? Have you heard of the teleological argument for the existence of God? How can you be an atheist if you haven't even read the teleological argument? Now, you have no idea what these mean, but you, you know, you've read Geisler and you've read Josh McDowell, and so you use these uh, as arguments. And so you're just waiting for an atheist to ask you, uh, ask you about these. That's the just there asking approach. Now, the problem with this approach is that you have no idea what the arguments themselves mean. This is where I was in high school. I just read all this stuff, but I really didn't own it. I really didn't understand it, but I, I, I used these as a defense of the faith. Okay? That's the first approach. The second approach, which I call the just uh, ask the experts approach, the ask the experts approach, is very likened to the first one. This is where an atheist or a non-believer will ask you to defend your faith, and your response is, well, I don't really know how to respond to that argument, or I don't really know how to respond to you, but J.P. Moreland's done a really good job at, at dealing with that question, so I, I recommend that you read him. Or you need to read Josh McDowell on that. And they may ask you, well, why do you believe? You say, well, I don't really know. You know I, haven't really, I haven't really thought about it, but Josh McDowell has thought about it, and you should read Josh McDowell. You should read J.P. Moreland. You should read Norman Geisler. So we kind of defer the question. We can't, we can't articulate our own views, but we defer the question to the experts. And we've done that before too, right? When you're backed into a corner, <laughs> when you have to give a response or a defense of your faith, 
you'll do whatever you can kind of to get out of that corner, right? And we've done that. I've done that. So we defer the question to the experts. And I think that approach is insufficient too. Because how J.P. Moreland may defend the faith may not be how you need to defend the faith. And you need to own your own defense. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Okay? So that's just the ask the experts approach. The third approach, I'm calling the he lives within my heart approach. The he lives within my heart approach. How does this work? This is the approach where someone comes up to you and asks you why you're a Christian. Why you believe in God. And you say, I don't really know. I don't have any reasons except that uh, I had this personal experience with Jesus Christ and uh, that's why I believe. And they say, why? I haven't had this experience. How, why, why should I believe that you're telling the truth? And you say, well, I don't, know. I don't really know. I just have this, had this experience. He lives within my heart. Praise the Lord. And that's the end of the story for me. That's the he lives within my heart, heart approach. Now, before we go any further, I want to say that having this personal experience with Jesus Christ is absolutely critical. Okay? I'm not disparaging that as a response. I think that if you haven't had this personal experience, that you have to question whether or not you're, you're a Christian. I mean, I think that's part of what it means to be a Christian. What I am saying, though, is as a defense, as an apologetic, it's insufficient. Okay? Now, if you don't buy it, just hold on tight, and I'll, I'll explain why I think it's insufficient. But um, I do think this needs to be a part of our apologetic, but it can't end there. It can't be the only apologetics that we use. Okay? So I think if we use the he lives within my heart approach solely, we're going to be lacking something in our defense. Not only as individuals, but as a community, as a church. Okay? And I think we see this approach uh, as the, the main approach these days. And I think that's a problem. All right, and I'll explain why. Okay, the final approach, and this is the one I'm going to uh, recommend to you, I'm calling the integrated worldview approach. The integrated worldview approach. This approach sees uh, a defense of the faith as coming out of a larger, um, a larger base of knowledge and study. So that what we're doing is we're learning about God, we're learning about his world, we're learning about how we relate to God, we learn about who we are, we study anthropology, we study uh, about what it means to be a person, we study about who God is, we study the Holy Spirit, Christology, we learn about the Bible, we study bibliology, theology, and out of this base of knowledge, our defense of the faith comes. So when someone asks us to give a, a reason for why God exists, we've done our study, we've done our theology, we've done our study of the, the cosmos, and so our defense comes out of that broader base of knowledge. So what we're doing is we're actually thinking about our Christianity as a worldview. And we're coming up with, um, with reasons for why we believe in, in Jesus and why we believe uh, as a Christian based on our study of this broader worldview. All right? So um, we don't simply study apologetics as an end in and of itself. That's kind of the idea. We don't simply try to gather a bunch of arguments so that when someone asks us a question, we can answer those, those questions. We're actually doing study that may not be related to evangelism and apologetics at all. But when we are asked the question, we have this base of knowledge from which to draw so that we can respond adequately. All right? So we study Christianity as a worldview, and then from that worldview, we defend the faith. All right? So it's a much more integrated approach. And I'm going to use the term holistic. People get on me for using that term because it sounds new agey. But holistic simply means it applies to every aspect of who you are and every aspect of your thought life. Okay, so it's a, it's a more holistic approach. 
Okay, so this is the uh, this is the uh, the approach to defending the faith that I'm uh, I'm going to uh, commend to you, and then I'm going to try to de defend I'm going to defend my view of defense of the faith uh, in the next in what follows. All right, let me see where we are at here. Now let me talk to you about uh, why I believe this approach is important, and I'm going to do that by talking about what I see as the state of the church. So what I want to do uh, in the next few minutes here is talk about where we are as a as a people. As, as a Christian body. And I want to talk about what I see as a problem. Okay, I think the church is in a certain situation right now, and I, I, I think it's unbalanced. Okay? I'm not going to argue that where we are is entirely incorrect, but I'm going to argue that it's unbalanced, and we need to get back to a more balanced view of, uh, of church life and of our own understanding of our relationship to Christ. Okay? Um, now, if you have questions, uh, hold them just for a few minutes. I'm going to present some things, and I'll open it up for, for questions. So if you have a question, just go ahead and jot it down, and, uh, and then we can, uh, we can talk about those questions, okay? So I, don't, I just want to be able to get through some, uh, a certain section so that I can get all the ideas on the table, and then we can discuss those ideas. Fair enough? All right. Now, where are we as a church? What are we, uh, what do we, where do we find ourselves? I'm going to argue that Western Christianity largely has emphasized the experiential at the expense of, now that's important, that phrase, the, at the expense of the ideational. Okay, we've emphasized the experiential at the expense of the ideational. Now what do I mean by that? What I mean is that the Christian church, and I'm talking mostly about the Western church now, uh, this may not be true of other areas of the world, and I want to make that point because it's important. Um, and I'm also going to characterize the church with broad brush strokes, and that's always dangerous, because anytime you do that, anytime you say, the church is this way, you're going to get 15 hands and say, well, what about this instance, and what about that person? I mean, that's typical, right? But I think it is possible to draw broad conclusions, and that's what I want to do. And I understand that there are going to be exceptions to this, okay? I understand that. But let's, uh, let me, allow me to, um, to, to have the liberty to, to paint with a broad brush right now, and then we can talk about the exceptions later. All right, so what does it mean to be uh, emphasizing the experiential at the expense of the ideational? First of all, that means that uh, the Western church is made up of people that largely gather based on shared experiences, either experiences that they've already had or experiences that they hope to have, rather than gathering together around a core set of ideas. All right? So an experientially based community is a community that gathers based on shared experiences, and I might add to that relationships, relationship building, rather than on a core set of ideas. Okay, now, I'm going to say again, the idea that uh, we gather together as a community around these shared experiences is not in and of itself bad. I think the danger is that this is, all, this is the only grounds on which we're meeting, it's the only grounds upon which our community is based. That's where I see the danger. And, and we'll get into that a little bit more later. Now, let me give you some examples. How does this, what does this mean, uh, cashed out in our actual experience? If I were to go into an average evangelical church in the West and ask the people why they're sitting in the pew, okay, why, the average churchgoer, why are you here? Or why do you uh, come to church? Why do you get involved in Christian service? Their answer primarily will be either one, that I've had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I've had experience of some sort, or two, it will be that um, 
someone invited me and I got to be really good friends with this person and I'm involved in a Bible study or a fellowship with this person or a group of people and so I come to be more part of that, that community, that fellowship. Now notice the two aspects of this response. One is experiential, right? I've had a personal relationship with, a, with, the, with God. Okay, and that's important, very important. The other is relational. Now the problem is if I were to ask the same group of people questions like, Give me a general idea of what the incarnation means. Not that they have to go into a lot of detail, be a, uh, you know, go into the, the depths of theology, but just what is the incarnation? What does it entail? Or um, think about your soul. Do you have a soul? And what, what part does your soul play in your humanity? Uh, what work does it do in your worldview? Most of the time, the response that you'll get is either silence or deferring to some authority. Most people cannot answer those types of questions. Uh, if you were to ask a person to give uh, 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 the basic argument of the Book of Romans, probably 95 to 99% of the people couldn't do it. Okay, now, to me, that's a problem. And this is where I'm, trying to, uh, I'm going to try to emphasize today. The experiential is important, but we've emphasized the experiential at the expense of the ideas. Now, a big problem with that is that if the ideas are not the foundation for the experience, then the experience tends to take over and that's where the cults come from, uh, just quite frankly. All right? The experience tends to drive the ideas. And so we start to formulate this foundation of knowledge based on the experience we had instead of letting the knowledge drive how our experience ought to go. All right? And that's a big problem. So the logos has to, has to drive the experience of that, uh, of what that means. So what I'm saying then is experience should come as a response to truth instead of truth being created out of the experience. And where I feel the Western church is now is that we are, we are emphasizing the experience rather than, than the, the truth, rather than the lot us. Richard John Newhouse uh, wrote this recently. He said, institutionally, the business of religion is flourishing. Okay, and we see that, right? We see a lot of renewed interest in, in, in uh, God uh, well, if we put uh, God in quotes, we can say even New Age uh, thinking is emphasizing the spiritual, right? People are interested in the spiritual aspect of getting in touch with, um, with a, a, the transcendent of some sort. So we see that happening, it's, and it's very interesting that that is happening. Um, so Newhouse says, we see the business of religion flourishing, yet there, the uneasiness persists that something is fundamentally different, that maybe religion is in a different business nowadays. I think this is, this is key. Survey research uh, evidence of religions flourishing is not necessarily good news. If the religion that flourishes is religion on our own terms, it may turn out that secularization has triumphed after all in the name of religion. Boy, is that insightful. Such religion is devoted to need meeting rather than truth telling. And this is the idea of the experiential and the relational. I come to church because I get my needs met or because it makes me feel a certain way, right? That's what grounds our church. It is given to dialogue rather than proclamation. Now, what does proclamation do? It says, this is the way things are, and you need to respond to that truth, right? Dialogue says, well, tell me how you're feeling today. Let's talk about that. How can I help you? You know, that, that, that's what he's talking about when he says dialogue rather than proclamation. And it is embarrassed, uh, the church is embarrassed to suggest that there are terms other than our own that call us to a change that might be something like repentance. 
Okay? So this is a problem that I see happening in the Western church, and it relates directly to our defense of the faith. So when someone who does not believe, a non-believer comes up and asks us why we believe in what we believe, or what is it that we actually do believe, what do we believe about the Incarnation? You claim that, that uh, God came down to earth in the form of a man. What does that mean? We have no response because we haven't thought about this. We're not gathering based on our understanding of these ideas. And the only thing we can say then is, well, I've had an experience. Uh, Jesus lives within my heart. And by the way, that's important, right? The fact that Jesus lives in your, in your heart is really important, but I'll, that's our only response now. We can't go beyond that. And unfortunately, in a scientifically-minded culture, People are asking for more than that. And I think we have to be ready to respond. And if, you, if you're going to stick around for my next session, we'll look at a passage in Peter where Peter tells us to do just that, to be ready to make a defense. All right, so the Western Church then emphasizes, and this is a, a, another key point, emphasizes belief or personal conviction over knowledge. All right? Emphasizes belief, and this is a 212 on your, on your handout emphasizes personal conviction and personal belief over knowledge. So now it becomes what's important is what I believe about, what I, about my faith rather than actually knowing something about my faith, having your ground of knowledge from which to draw about what I believe in. All right? So why is... Um, actually, let me give you a couple of examples about this dichotomy uh, that exists between... Uh, knowledge and belief, and, and what I'm trying to surface here in, in the distinction. Um, most of us have, have heard of, uh, of um, uh, Carl Sagan. He was a very he was an evangelist for the secularization uh, movement. And uh, here's what he wrote: The methods and ethics of science and religion are profoundly different. Religion frequently asks us to believe without question, even or especially in the absence of hard evidence. What do you think of that? Indeed, this is the central meaning of faith. So you can only exercise faith, and this is a picture he has of Christianity or, or of religious people. You can only have faith if you don't have evidence for what you believe. That's what faith means. Okay? Indeed, this is the central meaning of faith. Science asks us to take nothing on faith, to be wary of our penchant for self-deception or to reject anecdotal evidence. Science considers deep skepticism a prime virtue. Religion often sees it as a barrier to enlightenment. So for centuries, there has been a conflict between the two fields, the discovery of science challenging the religious dogmas and religion attempting to ignore or suppress the disquieting findings. Now, all of us here would probably disagree with Sagan. At least I hope so, right? We'd say that, <laughs> we'd say that that's not actually true of Christianity. And besides, who is science to, to set the rules? Maybe, it's, maybe coming to faith that way is the right way and science has it all wrong. The problem is that uh, the scientists and the secular community, which is the people we're trying to reach, right? We're not trying to reach people that already accept what we have to say. We're trying to defend the faith to people that are skeptics, that are agnostic, or that are, um, that are atheists, right? So these are the people we're trying to reach. So in order to bridge that gap, we have to overcome this, this caricature and be able to penetrate that thinking. And I think we have to do that by being able to defend the faith in a, in a rational way. All right. So you may disagree that Sagan, Sagan's characteristic is, is uh, correct, and I hope you would, but we, these are still the people that our apologetic has to penetrate, and so we want to talk about how we can best do that. 
Now let me let me give you another example of of, of a statement that um, helps promote this view that 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 our religious uh, our religious dogma or our religious um, uh, affiliation has nothing to do with reason that is separate from reason. Listen to this quote by uh, a well-known evangelical, and this is if I said his name, everyone here would know exactly what I'm talking about. But he wrote this in an interview, or he said this in, a, in an interview uh, a few years ago. The question was asked of him why he believes in Christianity or why he is a Christian. And this is, this is his response. In the moonlight, I went into the woods. I opened up the Bible and laid it on a tree stump. Then I knelt down and said, Oh God, I don't understand all that is in this book. Many things seem to be contradictory. Okay, so he's looking at the Bible and he says, I look at this book and everything, things in it just seem to contradict itself. It seems irrational. In fact, he goes on to say that. I cannot intellectually accept it. Okay, intellectually, this book doesn't seem to make any sense to me. Now listen to, listen to what he did next. He says, But I am going to accept it by faith as your word, as your inspired divine word. And then he says, And I did accept it by faith, and I have never had a doubt since then. Okay, so now he takes a, he takes a book that he says, Intellectually, it's hogwash. I can't buy it. It contradicts itself. I, I can't accept it intellectually. But then he exercises something called faith, and all of a sudden, it's not only, uh, it does, and not only is it something that he can accept, but he accepts it as God's divine inspired word by this exercise of faith. Okay? So faith for this person created truth, didn't it? By exercising faith, it made something true that formerly intellectually didn't seem to be true. Now, I'm overstating my, my critique of this, okay, because most of us here have exercised that kind of faith. Who in here came to Christ based on an argument of some sort? 